0: what you believe is just a set of all the experiences you've had to date you know growing up that way things were easy and you don't even realize how easy until you get into the world as an adult start being empathetic to the lives that other people have had and their road to get here was much different than yours that is me still that hasn't changed at all
1: Greetings. I'm Raman Chada, founder of the Junto Institute. Welcome to Flourishing Together, where we have inspiring conversations with people who are becoming infinitely better at who they are and what they do. I'm really excited about uh, this episode because the one theme that I saw kind of going through the, uh, both of the conversations was this idea of living a, uh, a life driven by principles and values. And those have been, uh, very important to me in my life. And so it was fun, uh, kind of exploring them with, uh, both of our guests, uh, on this episode. Uh, so this kind of features two pretty amazing men who have, uh, grown into places that, They may not have expected when they were uh, a little bit younger. And uh, Chris Crisco is the one we'll start with. He's the uh, chief customer officer at Buildout, uh, which is the leading solution for marketing commercial real estate listings. And Chris's conversation will be followed by Paul Pagel, uh, who is the CEO at Eighth Light, a company that crafts software from mobile to microservices. So, we'll begin with Chris, um, who is a Junto alumnus, and uh, along with his partners, uh, he completed uh, our apprenticeship program in 2018. During which I had observed uh, a very deep engagement in the conversations that he was a part of, um, his learning process, and then also just his open mindedness to exploring uh, new topics, new um, ideas in a way that Candidly, probably was um, higher or deeper than than uh, many people that go through a program. And then last year, uh, in addition to uh, participating in uh, the leadership forum with his partners, Chris went through our master class uh, in emotionally intelligent leadership. And it was during that that he just seemed to flourish, and he uh, really dove into the the learning. Uh, was very attentive and engaged in the conversations. And over the course of the year, as things unfolded, we exchanged uh, dozens of book recommendations, uh, weekend text messages, uh, and stories of our daily interactions. It, it was it was really inspiring for me. Um, and as you'll hear, he's a fairly young man, um, yet comes across as someone who is truly an old soul. So he brings an inspiring level of wisdom for someone who has uh, so many years yet ahead of him. I'm going to share my emotions uh, shortly, but it uh, goes without saying, at least for those of us in the room, that I'm really thrilled to have you here with us this morning, Chris. Um, Chris is uh, perhaps one of the hardest working alumni that we've had, and uh, you're going to get to hear a good amount of his story shortly. Um, but we're gonna start with our emotional check-in. And so, Chris, if I can have you share
0: what you're feeling this morning and why. I'm in the, the joy and love column a lot here. Um I feel
2: peaceful, tranquil.
0: Mm content, yet eager, and excited for the future, um, and I'm experiencing a lot of love right now, mostly due to just a lot of great things that are happening at home. I feel closer to my family than ever before. That's exciting.
1: Well, I'm feeling um, a little bit of a lot. Uh, I'm I'm coming off of a cold, so I'm still feeling a little aggravated, annoyed, frustrated, irritable. Um, just about that because it started Monday morning uh, of the week that we're doing this, and so it was a, a pretty lousy way to begin the week. Um, at the same time, feeling very excited, optimistic, and uh, enthusiastic and eager about some things that are um, happening personally as well. So, sounds like we share some experiences. Nice, that.
0: yeah, beautiful.
1: All right, let's go ahead and get started, Chris. Um, as we often do with, uh, with these conversations, I want you to begin with the first recollection you have of
0: leadership. Um leadership is pretty loaded. So got to go back to just kind of being a kid. And I think we've had my mom come up a number of times in conversations. I think uh, when I think of what a leader is, I consider an article that you actually wrote for uh, a weekly Junto email blast a while back I want to say maybe last May, and it was um, leading from the front and being a servant leader. I just think this is a perfect opportunity to, you know, give my my mama a shout out to being a great leader here. She she very much embodied both of those: the servant leader and showing us instead of just telling us how we should be super smart intelligent woman beautiful classy selfless and not just with our immediate family with everyone that she worked with was known in our neighborhood for being the the best real estate agent because she told the truth um and that didn't always get her you know clients especially in the early days but as time went on it's a very much a referral business and she kind of grew into A really popular figure in terms of uh, uh, real estate growing up. And she, you know, she had some really great opportunities to kind of go full force into into business and kind of get downtown and travel more and stuff like that. And she decided not to do that. At at the same time, um, her father's business, who passed away young at 50 years old, had a lot of vacancy they built uh shopping centers and my mother took over that business and over the last 20 years has not only kept it afloat but kept it thriving which has supported you know in a lot of ways our family but then her family as well and it's just something that's admirable when i think about what really matters in life you know you could make all the money in the world but no amount of money is ever bought one minute of time, and it certainly hasn't bought happiness. And when I think of like that in and of itself, I think of my mother. I've also been reflecting a little bit on how, I don't know, different or strange I am compared to everyone else in my family and evaluating like where that came from. And I've spent a lot of time thinking of my... My papa Chris, same name as man, uh, incredibly smart guy. You know, had me reading and doing phonics and stuff like that at a at a young age, and going through the encyclopedias. And you know, we we didn't really. My family didn't read a lot growing up, but now I have this sort of obsession with with reading and learning. And when I reflect back on it, I think he was a big influence there.
1: Christy, mind if we uh, go on a little bit of a tangent here?
0: Not at all. Okay.
1: I want to uh clarify a little bit more about when you said that you're strange in regards to your family. Uh-huh. How are you strange?
0: Um I I spend a lot of time uh just kind of thinking and observing everything around me and um so many times I think I'm just I just generally see the world I think through different through a different lens than my family and, you know, quite frankly, most of my friends as well. Um, at times, I sort of feel like an outcast in that regard. Um, mostly because sometimes people will say something to me, and and I couldn't think more differently about what they're saying. And I used to be sort of somewhat insecure about that, and. And kind of just adopt or adapt to sort of what's going on and kind of, you know, join in where I felt like it was relevant. And, you know, over the last three years or so, I've spent a lot more time either alone or speaking my mind in those conversations. If somebody says something I disagree with, I'll say, I disagree with what you just said. A nice I statement. <laughs> so is
1: that an example where whereas that type of statement in your family doesn't occur very often?
0: Uh super interesting. Yeah. So um uh there's a book, The End of Alzheimer's. I I, I got this book for uh for my mom. Um, you know, she said a few times that she feels like she's forgetting things, and um and I, I got this book and I said you know, I found this book to be very interesting. This isn't to be suggestive or anything like that. I'm noticing anything, but I've heard you say this a few times, and I thought it might be an interesting read for you—just something to keep on the nightstand. And my um, sister, who lives out of town, had come in, and she was—we were having dinner, and she was saying, "Mom's reading this book," and she's like, "She never does anything I tell her she should do." And I said, well, "That's because you're shooting on her." You're telling her what she should do, and people generally don't respond well to that. So I thought it was like a really concrete example of the difference between the I and the you statements and um, the effectiveness of that. If you kind of, in light of getting people to kind of go in in the direction where you'd like them to go, you know, I certainly would like my mom to read the book and take, you know, if she does have the EpoE. Three or four gene to start thinking about ways to, you know, to not add fuel to that fire and speed up, you know, kind of losing your mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest lessons I've ever learned was using "I disagree" as opposed to "you're wrong." Mm-hmm. They're effectively saying the same thing, right? But that mm-hmm. whole "you're wrong," I say that to you. The likelihood of there being defensiveness and Heightened animosity and negative emotion rises once the word you comes out of my lips versus I disagree. So, as uh, the, the people listening can probably tell, Chris is a pretty thoughtful guy, uh, as he kind of alluded to, very, very well read. And I, I mentioned earlier that he's one of our most hardworking alumni. Um, Chris, you've always shown a high degree of motivation um, when it comes to personal growth and, and development. And so i want to um understand a little bit more about the origin of that drive. how much of it is natural, how much is self cultivated? What do you attribute the history of that to?
0: So I don't have a specific place where it comes from that I could point to, so I would say that a lot of it is self cultivated um, We were always motivated by my father growing up, especially around sports, you know my my dad had, had a really cool thing that I've expressed to, the, to our team before that I, that I do think is important, even maybe more so in today's day and age. But my father used to say to us when we were playing you know, baseball or we were getting ready to start the game or football or something, he would kind of gather the team around and he would say, okay, we're going to have fun today, but you guys know what's really fun? Winning. And just kind of look at everybody... In the eyes and know that we're we want to win today. That's the that's the reason why we're out there today. It's important to win and it is. Um as I've gotten older I've been thinking about why is it so important? And maybe even more specifically like what it, what is it about winning um that we attached to so closely and are you familiar with the book uh win forever by pete carroll i've heard of it i haven't read it really cool book so he wrote this book between the year that I, he left usc and went to the seahawks the seahawks weren't a good team they want, maybe won maybe one you know seven games or something in uh the previous couple seasons and in a short time they went on to win the super bowl and be one of the best teams in the league um He reflects on Maslow and uh, sort of the hierarchy of needs and self actualizing and sort of talks about his role. What he found over time is to create this place where people can become the best versions of themselves. And when he talks about winning forever, specifically, what he means is that. You are constantly competing against yourself, so a lot of his philosophy, which by the way was was curated over uh, decades, I think he got fi- he got fired five times. People don't ever hear about that, right you You kind of fail forward um, and and learned an incredible amount and kind of polished what his philosophy was but win forever was we're not competing with the other team. Control what you can control and absolutely maximize that every day. And that's something that I very much live my life by every day. And I think of literally every day of my life, those days when I don't want to get out of bed. I think about my dreams and I I, uh, do it anyway right i'm competing against me let's 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 do it another day let's move forward and in the f- next 20 minutes you're super happy that you did yeah so speaking of your dreams
1: um i think it was last
0: year right that you began
1: this daily routine of journaling in picture form yeah right?
0: it was last year it was last year it was actually probably around like september it hasn't been very long oh okay
1: and so it hasn't even been a year um but it integrates your dreams and ambitions uh, your life priorities, your daily feelings, and and a lot more. And you've stuck with it because you discovered that it was helping you. So um, because we're not on video here, uh, I'm going to ask you to break down your picture journal sure. for, for us in as much detail as you can. Um, what it is, what you include in it, and how you use it.
0: Sure. So I grabbed this just uh, off of my desk. Uh, this was from Monday.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So the first thing I write is something like a masterpiece day or a beautiful day, uh, a perfect day, and I kind of get my my mindset around that. I draw uh, a mountain, sort of you know leading up to the peak, left to right, and then going back down. And I draw myself at the bottom left, and I write the words agency. The word agency that you know this is this is up to me. Next thing I do is I draw pictures of my family at the top of the mountain. So right now that's me, my wife, um, my son, Leo, and my daughter, Jojo. And I write, don't ask me why, 2038, kind of a random year, but it's just kind of become something that I've stuck with. There's some other weird things in here as well. And again, maybe I'm a little bit strange here. Instead of doing three things or five things, I do four. I write down my four missions for 2038, the things that that I want to align to on a daily basis and know that that's what I'm going after. So I write, you know, I want to um, get remarried and celebrate my 25th anniversary to my wife um, in Greece, um, where we got engaged. I want to be a hero to my children, unquestionably. Um, I write three companies. Um, 20,000 employees and 10 million happy customers. Um, That employee number and customer number keeps growing. (laughs) You know, I think uh, it's possible to do all these things, and by then I would like to open my first school. Um, I haven't really baked what that means. I think, generally speaking, certain elements of our education system can be better, and uh, we could start teaching high performance, emotional intelligence, stuff like that at a young age. And um, I know that it's around that, but I also know that it'll be much different in 2038. So trying to stay pretty open minded about that. And then instead of writing, how will I feel? I write, how do I feel? So this is an exercise in actually going to that moment. And this will come up in my meditations where I'll actually picture being in Greece and my wife walking back down the aisle with the loved ones Around us, the people, and I try to be real realistic, right? People are gonna die. Like that's how vivid it is. There's certain people that are in my life now that I love dearly that aren't there. And it's a it's a highly emotional feeling. And I, you know, this time I wrote down how do I feel? I feel joyful, I feel free, lovely, and content. Um, the next thing I do is I have like a short practice in gratitude. So what am I grateful for? I just name the things that I'm grateful for. Handful of things here. You know, one of them uh being on this podcast. You know, this is a this is fun. This is a cool thing. Um I I try to have balance in my life. So I write self, family, friends, and work. And then I rate them each on a scale of one to ten. I'm generally optimistic. If you see something at a five, then you know, you should worry about me. Um, but you know, the beauty in this is I could look at areas where I'm not doing as well as I'd like to, and I'll name why. So say a friends is at a five. Um, am I resenting someone? Am I like and I just need to let that venom go. Do I need to, you know, schedule a, a dinner to catch up with a friend because I've been too focused on just work and my family? Stuff like that. Um, I write down the process and I write, uh, JEM one journal exercise, meditate plus one, help somebody today. Got to do those things before you start the day, and then. My four most important things, and the most important thing, first, up top, so that we knock those things out before we get into our emails and our crazy you know meetings. I write down my virtues, which I want to say came from uh, a, like a quiz you could take from Seligman's book. Um, but there's something online. And my virtues are vitality, creativity, leadership, perspective, and curiosity. And again this was Monday so I was thinking in the morning about kind of looking through and reading some some quotes and things from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. so I wrote if you can't fly then run if you can't run then walk if you can't walk then crawl but by all means keep moving forward. So that's that's the picture here if we want to I'm happy to leave this this back here for you. Yeah
1: and that's all on one page only. Mm-hmm. We'll have to figure out. You know, we'll we'll include it maybe on. Um, we'll integrate it into the the web page um, as an image, and it's pretty phenomenal. You you do this every day, every day, every day. Yeah, S- including weekends.
0: Yep, and a lot of times like this guides sort of the the beginning of my my meditation as well. I kind of think about those things and then incorporate some, depending on how I'm feeling that day. Yeah, change it up.
1: So, Chris, I know. Um, Enough about your background, whereby you, you know you mentioned that your father put an emphasis on sports. You grew up a very competitive athlete. If I remember correctly, you were going to play um, football into college. You even had dreams of being a professional athlete.
0: I, I sure did, and uh, a last-minute change uh, was uh, was important. And I'm certainly grateful that I that I didn't go that route. I, yeah. I love the the choice that I made not to play.
1: And you grew up in a. Um, in a family that was uh, in real estate for a long time, and then uh, started a career in, in real estate sales. And you, know, you effectively were an alpha male in that early stage of your um, adulthood, yet all of this kind of collides with this self-cultivated attention and focus on your growth and development. Which, from my standpoint, I've only seen Accelerate in the last two years, especially like last year, like the curve just steepened immensely. So I'd love for you to talk about the harmonizing those two things, you know the your background and where you were and who you were with who you are and who you're becoming and where you're going.
0: yeah, so okay, being sort of direct and upfront about this, right so grew up in America. White, male, family, um I think people would say good looking, athletic, um you have a lens of looking at the world that um, that you just live through your your thoughts on a daily basis, what do we have ninety thousand thoughts a day? Um, what you believe is just a set of all the experiences you've had to date. You know, growing up that way, things were easy. And you don't even realize how easy until you get into the world as an adult, start being empathetic to the lives that other people have had. And their road to get here was much different than yours. That is me still. That's that hasn't changed at all. And you know, all of those things are still true. Um I, I think anybody that would ever say that they would change things that that make you more powerful or more dominant in society is just lying to themselves and others. Those are advantages that you have. That from there you could catapult into a whole new stratosphere to be able to start from that point, but then also to reflect back and and think at uh, trying to think of the the best way to put this. Okay, three companies, 20,000 employees, 10 million customers. That is not about who you know, right? You know the saying, it's who you know, not what you know? I believe the complete opposite. And in this regard, this is one of those areas where my family would probably say I'm strange. Right? I believe that who you know will get you around the block and what you know will take you around the world. And so I want to know. You know, I want to I learn and, um, and I want to understand all the different people that I'm going to interact with. Everyone that could be my customer, anyone that could be an employee. Make sure that you are connecting those dots, that your employees can understand things about your customers that you cannot. And create this atmosphere, as I guess we were talking about Pete Carroll earlier, where people can thrive, where there is a culture of the best ideas coming forward so long as the the only ideas are coming from a select few people you're not going to get the best ideas right so um i think kind of getting into this this world being able to reflect back it, it's it's absolutely incredible for me because there's it's the best of both worlds right it's things are easy for me and they continue to be you know, people would smile at me on the train or something or give me the benefit of the doubt because of the way I look. Um, that's, that's good, right? That could affect your emotion and maybe drive your whole day for somebody. But being able to reflect back on that and think about that everyone is different. We're complex. Every decision that's made is emotional. Logic does not, you know, it's a small portion of what factors into all of our decision-making. And Um, yeah, I just, I feel fortunate to have had this realization, cannot even point to a specific time that it happened. But at one point I just kind of decided this was who I was and still is, but there's another side of this that I, that I don't understand. And I'm going to dedicate my life to understanding.
1: Let's go into, uh, closing appreciations. You want to start or you want me to start?
2: I'll take a break.
1: Okay. I have a lot of appreciations uh, for you and about you. Um, but one that I probably haven't shared before that I appreciate you stimulated is my appreciation for your comfort talking about your white male privilege. And you know, as someone who's who comes from a minority community, but um, because of my lighter skin and the fact that uh, most people have a hard time assessing what I am or who I am, I I certainly don't experience um, the breadth and depth of what so many other people do. And while I've heard some white males um, talk about it, uh, it's first of all rare, and then secondly, they tend to be a little bit older. And so to think that you're 32 years old, are so conscious of it. um, This wasn't the first time you brought it up, you brought it up a number of times in the couple of years we've known each other. And I just appreciate your awareness of it your comfort with it but also your discomfort with it the fact that it plays a role in the lens through which you look at the world and that um you continue to talk about it uh in the course of your daily discourse
0: thanks yeah i i i really don't bring it up very much i i don't think it's you know terribly effective to you know constantly share this with with people i think it but it is important to acknowledge it um So, yeah, thanks. My appreciation is, thank you, one, for having me on here. I I appreciate you. um, One of your questions started with uh, me being driven and hardworking, one of the most hardworking people or something like that. I I appreciate that. uh, It's very kind of you to say. I, I very much respect hardworking people. So to be put in that category is is a good thing. Um, I appreciate your mastery and commitment to emotional intelligence. I think the idea of focusing on one thing relentlessly and going deep as opposed to having this breath of things that you care about really makes this effective for everyone that you come in contact with. Uh, Everyone that I know that's gone through your program considers themselves in a better place having done so and has nothing but incredible things to say about you personally. I really appreciate that you practice what you preach and you could see it in little vocabulary words that you never mix up and never make the mistake of using one versus the other. Um, and you really, you can't understand that until you start to get into this emotional intelligence thing. But um, to say that you are essentially helping people earn emotional intelligence and then live in, a, in accordance with everything that you're teaching is, is, uh, is really unique and certainly something that people want to follow.
1: Our next guest is Paul Pagel, uh, who is CEO of Eighth Light, a software uh, crafting firm. And he has been a Junto mentor for the last few years. And Paul and I share uh, many similarities, um, one of which is our appreciation for the idea of craftsmanship. In his case, it's with software, and in my case, it's with uh, leadership and emotional intelligence. But it's been fun um, seeing him in action As he has also kind of demonstrated that mentorship itself is a is a craft. Uh, He's been very dedicated to following uh, the Junto process of mentorship, um, being fully engaged, and as a result uh, he's been one of our uh, most reliable mentor team leaders for the last couple of years. I admire his attention to personal and professional growth and most importantly have heard from each of the companies that he's mentored how valuable Paul's questions and shared experiences have been to them. Uh, So I'm I'm really proud to have him on our team. And so let's dive into that conversation. So today we've got uh, Paul Pagel, who has been a Junto mentor for the last few years and is a seasoned entrepreneur uh, running a company called Eighth Light, uh, which I uh, talked a little bit about in my introduction. And uh, very excited to have Paul joining us on Flourishing Together because since the time we met, uh, I've noticed that we've had a, a number of uh, mutual interests and uh, also some shared values, uh, which is obviously also why you're a part of Funto in the first place. Uh, so I wanted to welcome you, Paul, and uh, start by uh, doing a check-in on the emotion wheel.
2: Wonderful. Thank you, Raman. Uh, grateful to be here. And when I check in on the this is my first time on the emotion wheel, so we'll see if I can get it right. Um, today I'm I'm really feeling sentimental and nostalgic. Right before this meeting, uh, had a little bit of an exit interview with a longtime employee who presented a business model that we were gonna do internally, but then we decided that the organization wasn't the right vehicle for it and we spun it out of the company. And so Something that was unexpected and strong and a right uh, move for the organization ends up having this long-term employee exit to become a CEO and do something great, but it feels nostalgic thinking of all the great times and uh, thinking of all the good work that he did with me.
1: Uh, Well, there's no way of doing the emotion wheel right, but if there was, you just nailed it. Thank you. So I'm feeling uh, very happy in general, Um, a little confused and a little aggravated as well. I expect the happy is going to overtake both of those uh, over the course of the day. So let's dive right in. Uh, I'd love for you to share with us the first recollection that you have of leadership. Uh, what is the memory that gets stirred? What happened? Who was there? What did you take away from it?
2: Yeah, the, for me, when I was preparing for this, I was kept thinking of earlier and earlier examples. And Um, the one that really strikes out as impactful to me was when I was 15, I got into a little bit of trouble with something that is very quickly, uh, going to be legal here in Illinois. I was a little bit ahead of my time and through those proceedings, um, I was asked to do some community service and I did it at an organization in the Chicago suburbs called Lamb's Farm, which is for mentally handicapped individuals, a community that puts them to work and as well as provides a supporting environment. And I worked in the pet shop and uh, getting there, I was able to kind of show dogs to people who were looking to purchase dogs and all the proceeds went to the organization. And quickly after that, some people from Lake Forest High School started volunteering there. And they got that good job as the community service person got relegated to a very different job, which was cleaning the room of sick puppies. So if there was a sick puppy, they wouldn't show it and they would uh, nurse it back to health before they would uh, sell it. And so I was back there and it was, as you might imagine, a pretty disgusting environment and I had to do some pretty uh, uh, difficult work. And back there also, I worked much closer with the participants, the people who were living in the community, the mentally handicapped individuals. And what happened the first couple of times, uh, I was grossed out, did everything as quickly as I could and got out of that room as quickly as I, I possibly could. And one time I went back in and realized that one of, the, you know, one of the puppies was pretty dirty because of the bad work that I'd done. And so I sp- sat there and I felt bad about it. I was really guilty. And I uh, really scrubbed everything, cleaned way above and beyond for this one that I was responsible for, and really felt proud about the work that I had done. But what I noticed immediately after is that the others around me started working differently as well. They took and they scrubbed, and they were doing exactly what I was doing. And when I really think back of like what leadership meant to me, or what that was the first time I had a feeling of positive feedback from a nonverbal modeling of good behavior. So it wasn't me telling somebody what to do. I wasn't their manager. I was just there because I had been modeling bad behavior, to be honest. But the satisfaction and joy that I got out of other people modeling my good behavior was so much more amplifying than just doing good work
1: itself. So that's a, well, first of all, um, that's an inspiring story. It's also extraordinarily unique in that you weren't trying to role model and yet you saw the power of that outcome at a, sounds like a very early age.
2: Yeah. I I think that's what, um, especially myself as an awkward teenager, I didn't have the verbal language or the ability to really lead. And so the, it wasn't an act of leadership. It was really just watching how people responded to modeling of behavior.
1: All right. So since the time you became uh, a mentor in Junto, um, which I believe is about three years ago, if I recall correctly, you have uh, been a strong advocate for one of our operating principles, which is using shared experiences rather than advice. And I'd like to know a little bit about the background of that, um, why that is, and what role that principle itself plays in your work and life you know, outside of the realm of Junto.
2: And I find two, two big benefits. The first one's that um, with a shared experience, you can have strongly opinionated individuals in a room without creating conflict because you can't disagree with somebody's experience. It comes from a place that is filtered through their feelings, what they saw. And those are things that are so subjective that they they can't be argued with. So it creates a non-judgmental place to exist, where you can have two of the exact opposite experiences to the same thing, and they're both valid and they can't be disagreed with each other. And so it creates an interesting safety of which to learn, especially when you're in a group full of type A leaders who are incentivized by having their vision be aligned by other people. And so when in the feedback loops of leaders oftentimes can make it so that they're really trying to impart their vision to another person, which is a trap when you get into a group of peer leaders. And so I think that the shared experience really helps remind us that that's not what's important in this group, is to convince others of our vision, but to impart knowledge to them. The other part is that I don't have the exact science to describe this, but I have a catalog of stories that I can go back to and remember. And the human brain is just there to remember stories. If somebody gives me advice, I'll hold it for a short period of time and then it'll go with the context under which it is given. But I remember stories and I'll recall them much later on and learn more and more from the story itself. And so that uh, power of human story through shared experience I think lives with the individuals or has the ability to live with the individuals more than the advice which lives more in the context in which it's given.
1: I love that explanation. In fact, um that first part is is something we talk a lot about in Nunto, which is y- you can't argue with someone's experience, but the way that you articulated that was very unique. So if you don't mind, I might actually borrow some of the some of those words you used. Uh, I've also now discovered that you and I both have a deep appreciation for language and specific words and one of my favorite words one of my favorite phrases is words matter and i can i'm starting to realize that the same applies with you even though i've never articulated that to you verbally um okay i want to go go to the second part of that question though um back to the second part which is what role this plays in your work and life so uh, i think
2: that Building on my first story, I connect a lot of my version of leadership to modeling good behavior. And so when I don't use the word you or don't have a compliance-driven directive, I believe that um, the people around me can take those stories from me. And so I use it quite a bit at home to to the point where sometimes when I start a sentence in my experience, uh, my wife Liz will say, "No, no, no! I, I want to know what you think about this. I don't want a story." Uh, which I, I can appreciate that uh, uh, need for judgment as well in all of our lives. But I, I've just trained myself that uh, it, to exist as much in a non-judgmental position as possible. And so, and so the pendulum has swung the other way for me. So I find it with the people who work for me. Uh, to get me saying, not telling them what to do exactly, but telling them how I've learned things. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that um, I took over CEO at a very young age. I've had some imposter syndrome. This is a way that feels authentic and natural for me to lead. It's really hard for me to get into the big shoes CEO place. And that's not a mindset that I live in very often. And so this creates a place where I can influence and I can lead in a way that's way more authentic to who I am.
1: So one of the things I learned about you when we first met was uh, your story with Light, as well as your entrepreneurial journey. And if I recall correctly, it's not like you set out to be where you are today. It kind of just evolved over, over the course of time. Um, I, I'd love for you to share the story of how you ended up being the CEO of Eighth Flight um, several years ago, so Eighth Flight was
2: founded by my mentor uh, that I'd worked with at a previous organization when I was an apprentice, and I kind of came along as, quite honestly, probably some cheap labor uh, taking equity in the position, as well as a familiar uh, engineer in the deal, um, and. We started the company really based on his vision of strong quality and doing very good work, uh, creates great software products. And he was one of the most intense, engine, um, is one of the most intense engineers I've ever worked with. One of the most talented engineers I've ever worked with, and just drove this idea that there's a right way to do things, and it's our job as practitioners to get to that right way. And so that was the start of the organization. And largely a small team that was coming together to build big products was his vision. And over time, I started to create a different vision as I saw success and moved a little bit in the world of straddling both business and engineering. Um, And so we started to have this conflicting vision of what the company could become. And to his credit, he gave me a lot of space to move into that vision and become the CEO of the organization. But there was still always this conflict. And what I now understand is when the management and the ownership of an organization are separated by vision, it will create conflict. And there's a way to look at this and talk about all of the drama of the conflict that was created. But if I really step back and remove myself, it was the structure of having a vision, having a risk profile, having a reward profile that was different between the management and the ownership of an organization. And so fortunately, we were able to split where everybody really got what they wanted out of the deal. You know, when uh, co-founders split, that's usually not the case. And so I feel really proud that we were able to, although maybe not have the lasting relationship that is perfect, we were able to make sure all parties got what they wanted out of it And more importantly now is be able to put the company back together. And so that was when we started employee ownership. And I really learned that having a passive owner in an organization of professional services was a detriment to the mission of the company. And so really what I learned out of it was we need the management, employments, and ownership to all be aligned in one direction. And the only way I could think of structurally guaranteeing that was to make them the same people. And so uh, I I think that uh, while describing this in hindsight, I'm leaving out a lot of details where there are bumps along the road. I think that all of them are caused by these more underlying tensions.
1: So you started that uh, story by uh, using the word apprentice. and. Among many things that I mentioned that we have in common, um one of them is this appreciation for the concept of craftsmanship, which is where that word kind of fits in, right into this whole model, if you will. Um, I'd love to hear because I don't think we've ever shared this mutual appreciation um and where it comes from. So I'd love to hear where that comes from for you, um, this appreciation for the model of craftsmanship, the uh, apprenticeship model. and and then also, please do add. How you guys um, effectively practice that in your business?
2: Yeah. For me, the story starts when I became an apprentice in my mentor um, and his mentor really taught me there's a right way to do things. And we were in an immature industry of programmers, that there was no real everybody was self taught or kind of got a traditional degree which taught computer science, not programming and so it was a real wild west of people's experiences getting in but i went in with an almost moral imperative from my mentors that there's a right way to do things and so i had been playing around with programming for years and had all of the frustrations of a normal practitioner but what they did was created this underlying vocation of the work is satisfying when you do it for the work's sake And so it also made it that there's a right way to do things. And when you aspire to do those things, it creates a lifelong learning where the pursuit of mastery creates satisfaction in and of itself. And so I was not in search of this. I did not have this vocation. It was really my mentors who instilled this sense of vocation in me. And from that, now I can walk into a business setting and understand that there's a right way to do things. And that's focusing on the long-term, that's being intentional about the disciplines that I choose to exercise in my craft. And that's about understanding and judging my own work very critically. And when I take those, it turns out in software, those are also very market-driven skill sets. And so I'm very fortunate where the vocation that I was instilled from my mentors gave me purpose, but then the market really valued the outcomes of software products towards somebody driving with that level of quality. We've seen firms or we've seen uh, IT organizations have 40, 50 developers that are very talented individuals who are trying to coordinate and solve a software product uh, completely fail, where a team of five or six very focused individuals can build the same exact product. And we've seen that over the 13 years of our firm over and over and over again, And I think the difference is much less in the skill sets of the individuals, but how they approach their work, how they change, how they work while they're working. And I find those to be a lot of the disciplines of craft. And at the end of it, just the the idea of signing your work and a job well done, that you really left it all on the table, that you didn't take shortcuts and the satisfaction from craft is
1: just enormous. So... Did you then become acquainted with, or or maybe not even acquainted, but um, buy into the concept of the craft and apprenticeship because of your mentor? Was he the one who kind of stimulated that in you? Yes.
2: I saw the benefit that it had on my career, and I uh, wanted to continue to push that forward. Uh, We started our apprenticeship program uh, because we were recruiting, and we had a whole bunch of people who already knew how to do the craft but didn't have the level of uh, understanding of there is a right way to do it. They'd been trained in all of those other ways. And so when we started the apprenticeship program, that we were deciding we were gonna teach the way that I had been taught. So I was a little bit of the test case for can apprenticeship really instill there's a right way to do things. And so the secret sauce of Eighth Light has been that we teach people these things, the same secret sauce that has existed for generations of mankind is that teaching people how to do these things very intentionally became a competitive advantage to doing them better than the marketplace?
1: So, Paul, one, you said one thing that that struck me um, because we've seen this happen in Junto a fair amount, um, and actually, the emotional wheel is a good example, uh, which is ideas, principles, and concepts that people learn through the course of their work that they then bring into the home. And I loved how you you were. Continuously using the word "right" as it related to craft and engineering, in other words, there's a virtuous way of doing something that's hard to argue against, and as a result, people apply it on a regular basis because they see virtuous outcomes. And I think that's what has been driving some people to bring things that they're learning, whether it's at Junto or, or in other educational forums, into the home. and And you talked earlier about about um, telling your uh, sharing with your wife stories by starting with In My Experience. would love to hear if there are one or two other examples, similarly, of things that you've acquired during the course of your career that you've also brought into your home.
2: One of the most transformative aha moments to me was when I realized that our company is an evergreen company, that how you have to shift in managing an organization where you don't see an exit on the horizon. And so it means that every decision you make has to have the sustainability, has to have profitability, has to have um, kind of a time duration to it. And so when we kind of played through that, it changed how we look at debt, how we look at employee ownership, how we manage talent and don't try and accelerate people's skill sets. And when I look at that at home, I feel like a lot of those decisions have been uh, when we as a family sit down and talk about what can we afford. It's not necessarily what can we afford today. It's what is the model for our life right now and what does that play out over longer term period. So there, there are places where it's conservative, right? Like We save more, but there's places where you also pick what matters the most. And when it matters the most inside of a portfolio of sustainable, Uh, decisions, you can do those short-term things as well. And so kind of thinking through the consequences of sustainability uh, was very important at home. We also saw that quite a bit of apprenticeship in, um, my my son just started Montessori school. And what I really see is this is an apprenticeship on how to be a person more than it is about teaching him uh, specific content. And so I see things like how to wash your hands, how to use the executive functions and help set a table. Things that I really get from our apprenticeship program also, which is it's not teaching programming, it's how to teach how to think about a problem under which you are going to solve with programs. And so I think that seeing this back and forth parallel of teaching and the value of learning versus the value of the content, and then also seeing the sustainability of all of it, that things Uh, Most things in life don't happen fast. And the things that happen fast have big consequences or usually big risks. There's ways to create long time horizons and satisfaction that is continuing to build over time rather than increasing and waning and increasing and waning. And I feel like that's a lesson that I've really been able to bring into my personal life and my family.
1: All right. So we've heard you talk about your background as an engineer and uh, that's what You are by training an engineer and technologist. You're also a classic example as a result of how leadership and business savvy can be learned. And I encounter technologists on a day to day basis who talk about that, that I never set out to be a leader or running a company or CEO. What are a few specific experiences that you recall that helped shape you as a leader and as somebody who could effectively run a company now that has over? 150. 150 employees, yeah.
2: So early in the organization, uh, I talked a little bit about my mentor who was leading the organization at that time, uh, was a very skilled engineer and hired only other skilled engineers. And so what it turned out in after about a year inside of the organization, I, even though I was a co-founder, was one of the lowest skilled engineers in the organization. And I I loved what I did. I loved working with this really talented team. And so I had to figure out how to add more value to the organization. And so I started taking on things like business development, uh, talking to clients, planning where the next piece of work comes from. Uh, And so I think that a lot of it for me was out of a survival instinct uh, matched with kind of my next big mentor was uh, my mother was an executive salesperson. And so you know I could have done lots of HR and gone in lots of different ways, but the first place that I went in was for sales, which was very impactful and had a mentor who taught me how to do that craft and how to lead with the engineering that I had come from it gave me a huge advantage to connect and have problem-solving abilities but that can only connect if I connect with the individuals and the people, and that's where the sales craft comes in. Where I don't, what we were selling as a craft quality good wasn't commoditizable, and so it had to connect deeply with the individuals, and that's what I really learned from my mother. And as I went down that path, I found a lot of satisfaction in knowing that I there was this really talented team who cared about what they did. And I, I just could see that the marketplace needed more of this. And so then it was really kind of a, just a snowball effect of connecting with more people, finding more intentional ways to make those connections and selling. And so slowly I did pretty much every job in the company from the bottom engineering position all the way up. And a lot of that was just to increase value. And there was this time where it switched over from trying to preserve my job to just seeing what the value of this thing could be in the world. And that's where um, that's where everything changed for me. And I really went down the sales route for the next 10 years And now in market strategy and leadership. And I went and did my MBA and did all of these classical check the box type things, which I think are important, but they really came from the empathy of seeing what people could do and really having a desire to bring that to market and a little bit of fear. Right there was there's a little bit of fear of my position.
1: Well, Paul, it's been a delight having you here with us. Um, As we do with all of our junto sessions, we're going to close with uh, a round of appreciations. Um, Would you like to go first? I'll I'll go first. Uh, So I I alluded to this earlier. I have a very deep appreciation for your use of language and words. Uh, I noticed I was listening more intently to you than I might otherwise, um, only because I was actually waiting to hear the words, which in truth actually adversely affects intent listening, um, which is a whole separate issue. But my point is is that I was actually excited about what was going to be coming out of your mouth as you were sharing your thoughts and stories because you have a really unique way of, with, of words and also a very terrific vocabulary.
2: My appreciation is for the questions that you brought to me beforehand. Was such an intent of showing the places where junto maps to so many of the things that I care about, and just the the apprenticeship and learning and long term focus. It really was easier for me to bring up stories when we see about all our shared experiences. And shared passions are so
1: close. So I just really appreciate seeding
2: those shared passions.
1: If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next episode. This episode was produced by Dante32.